This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. I recently had the pleasure of having a conversation with Dr. Beverly Tatum. It was a live event at Wesleyan R.J. Julia's in Middletown, and I had just loved her book when I read it 20 years ago, and this was an anniversary edition, and she is smart and fascinating, so I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I enjoyed conversing with her. My discussion with Dr. Tatum. You hear a lot of conversations that the younger generation is more colorblind than our generation was. Do you think they are more colorblind or just color silent? Well, in my book, I call them color silent. And, that, and I'll, tell, I'll say a word about why that is. But maybe we should start by just reflecting on the social context mm-hmm. of someone born in 1997. So let, I, I'm wondering if there are any 1997 babies in the room. One right there, got two. got a couple. Um, or maybe 96 or 98, uh, uh, late 90s. I'm going to use 1997, and if you were born in 1997, you were four years old when 9-11 happened in 2001. And you might not remember 9-11 because you were only four, but certainly your growing up years have been shaped by the post-9-11 social environment. And if you fast forward to 2008, you're 11 in 2008 when the economy crashes and the impact of the Great Recession on your, the economic stability of your family may or may not have been an issue, but certainly in black and Latinx communities, it was a major catastrophe in terms of housing and loss of employment and those things. And also in 2008, important to note, the election of then-Senator Barack Obama as the 44th president of the United States, the first black president um, in our country. And for many people, imagine this, you're 11 years old and you're in your house and you're watching TV and you're hearing people talk about a post-racial society um, and that race is no longer a barrier for what you hope to achieve in the world. Fast forward to 2012, you're 15 and Trayvon Martin is killed. And the aftermath of the Trayvon Martin shooting and the acquittal of George Zimmerman and the implications of that, particularly if you are black and brown and how you identify with that person. And then imagine two years later, it's 2014, you're 17 years old. That's the year that Michael Brown was killed. And the other police shootings that I don't need to rehearse here that we all are very aware of, the emergence of Black Lives Matter, which really began with the shooting of Trayvon Martin, but really coming to the fore with the Ferguson uprising in 2014 and the spread of activism across college campuses um, in that year and the following And now let's imagine it's 2016 and we've got the divisive racial politics um, that were so much a part of the 2016 election. You're 19 years old and Donald Trump is elected president. 
And depending on when your birthday falls, maybe you're 20 years old when Charlottesville happens. And so when people say to me, are the black kids still sitting together in the cafeteria? Of course, the answer is yes in most places. And when they say, is it better? I reflect, what would that 20-year-old whose life milestones I've just laid out, would they say, is it better? Mm -hmm. Certainly what we know from surveys of young people of this generation, this, 20, this 1997 and later generation, is that they, 94% of them, will say that they have witnessed instances of bias, seeing someone treated unfairly um, because of their group membership. And yet, only 20% of that 94%, only 20% of that total, will say that they are comfortable talking about biased incidents, that they're comfortable speaking about it. So for me, that tells me that they certainly notice difference. They're aware that bias happens, that racism is still an issue in our society, but most of them don't want to talk about it. 79% say that I'm afraid of speaking up about it because I think I'll make it worse and or it will cause conflict of some kind. And so for that reason, I describe them as not colorblind, but color silent. Yeah. You, you had a um, piece in the prologue in Stephen Phillips' 2016 book, uh, entitled Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. He highlights the speed with which American population is shifting. And I've, I've said this statistic to someone every day since I read it. Each day, the size of the U.S. population increases by more than 8,000 people. A day, So you can do the math and it does make sense. 90% of that growth consists of people of color. 90%. Contributing to the fact that in 2014, it was marked the first time the majority of elementary and secondary school children were of color. Black, Latino, Asian, or American Indian. So how does or will this changed the conversation or the reality of what we're dealing with in our schools. Well, what's interesting about that, you know, that statistic took me uh, by surprise yeah. when I read it in his book, Brown is the New White, and I certainly quoted it in my book. But one of the things that also took me by surprise was the statistic, speaking as someone born in the 1950s, that in 1950, the U.S. population was 90% white. People are looking at me like, what? Yes, 90, 90, 90% white um, in the United States. And so if you think wow. about the fact that in the 1950s, the U.S. population was 90% white. In 2014, the school-age population was 50% children of color. That tells you that there's a rapid change taking place. And some have argued, and I think there may be some wisdom in this, that some of the racial anxiety that is being expressed, particularly in the white population, is perhaps being stimulated by the sense of being uh, outnumbered, mm. you know, growing awareness that the, the population of color is soon going to be the majority collectively. And so um, yet, in the book, I talk about the fact that, as I say, new faces, same places. Um, today, neighborhoods 
are still segregated, as much as segregated for the most part as they were 20 years ago, with a few exceptions. And schools are more segregated today than they were 20 years ago. So we have a more diverse population, but yet black and brown children are still concentrated in schools where there are 10% or less white students. Many white students are in schools with very few kids of color. And a survey that I cite in the book talks about um, 75% of white adults have, white, have social networks that are entirely white, meaning no presence of people of color in them at all. So that tells us that even though our demographics are changing, the social dynamics of our society have remained pretty stagnant in but some ways. H- how can that continue with those numbers? Well, I think you have to look at how, you know, I live in Atlanta, which is a very diverse city, but there are lots of neighborhoods where you can find uh, largely black people living or Latinos um, and white people living other places. Of course, there are some racially mixed neighborhoods, but even in a city like New York, uh, you know, which is probably the most diverse in the nation, you will find buildings next to, you know, that are, you know, the segregation is perhaps micro-segregation um, or neighborhoods that are still segregated. And, uh, and certainly when we look at, one of the things I tried to do in this book is provide some historical context for how those neighborhoods got that way. Oh, well, yeah. Tell that story about Chicago and their board of realtors and the FHA and VA rules. I found that shocking. Well, I mean, this is our history, and the problem is most people don't know this history. But if you think about the Great Migration, right, you think about, by that Great Migration, I'm talking about the flow of African Americans out of the South into northern cities, uh, looking for employment in factories and other places, uh, escaping the Jim Crow uh, conditions of the South, and uh, coming into communities where they were forced into uh, particular geographic areas, not allowed to rent or buy in other neighborhoods. Um, and so the, a concentration, as you might, you know, as that happens, you know, people get concentrated into, you know, the word we might use today, ghettos. And the um, Chicago Board of Realtors passing regulations essentially saying that realtors may not show black people houses in white neighborhoods at the risk of losing their license. Right. And so um, policies and practices, not just lending, not just real estate steering, but also lending practices, even the federal government. You know, we often hear about um, things like the GI Bill uh, making it possible for vets coming home from World War II to buy homes and start families and start to accumulate real estate assets, which contribute to family wealth. Um, but those GIs were being offered loans often to buy homes in new construction suburban communities. And a lot of those new construction suburban communities were very explicitly designed with real estate covenants that prevented um, black people and others, sometimes Jews, from being able to buy into neighborhoods. Meanwhile... It's very becoming uh, the same policies or a set of policies made it difficult for them to get loans to buy older homes because if they were forced to buy in neighborhoods that were um, 
already identified as black neighborhoods, those neighborhoods were redlined, literally, or redlined, drawn around them, and therefore ineligible for lending. Um, the FHA had a system of categorizing neighborhoods as green, blue, yellow, or red. Green was new construction, all white. Blue was older, but still white. Yellow was neighborhoods in transition. Red was neighborhoods occupied primarily by people of color, most specifically African-Americans. And if you were forced into a red neighborhood, red-lined neighborhood, because of the other policies and practices, you couldn't get loans to buy property or fix property in those neighborhoods. So all of that contributes to the real estate housing patterns we see today. So speaking of segregated schools, you had a story in the book about uh, the METCO program, where kids from uh, Boston were bused to suburban schools. So these were really good schools, yet the kids were not performing well. And they went in and put in this program mm -hmm. called SET. Talk to us about what happened with that, and then I have a follow-up question. Sure. So in, the, in this particular section of the book, I'm talking about a voluntary desegregation program in the greater Boston area known as METCO. And the, um, as you described, black and Latino kids are in that program voluntarily. Their parents signed them up to be bused into uh, suburban communities surrounding Boston. And if you know anything about this region, uh, those suburban communities are largely white. The schools are largely white. And so if you walk into Wellesley or Needham or Newton or, you know, Sudbury, <laughs> any one of those towns, you will find that most of the black children in those schools are Boston residents who have been bused there through this voluntary program. And I had the opportunity in the 90s, late 90s, to do some consulting with these districts about how to create more inclusive learning environments for those children. The superintendents of those school districts were trying to figure out how to uh, eliminate some of the achievement gap that they were observing in these schools. And one of the things that we started to talk about was what was the impact of having children being bused into suburban communities in the context, and if you, you know, know anything about the history of school desegregation in Boston, you know that this was a very difficult process, a lot of hostility um, surrounding that school desegregation process. And so one of the questions you have to ask is, if a child is coming into a district, do they feel welcome? Or is there a history of um, hostility? You know, what's the environment? And what does that environment have to do with the, the young person's feeling of belonging in that school setting? So we were talking about these issues, and I was doing some work with these schools. And I was teaching a course on... Um, the course was called Effective Anti-Racist Classroom Practices for All Students. That was the name of it. And teachers from across these various districts were taking the course. And um, as, part of one of, as part of the course, they did projects. And one of the school districts um, had as their project the idea of creating an affinity group for the students who were being bused in. And it was called SET which stood for Student Efficacy Training. And what they did was create a, a period where the 
the kids who were getting off the bus from Boston, first period, would spend time together talking about, you know, what had happened the night before or whatever was on their minds, but also talking about um, their school experience, supporting each other around homework completion, you know, facilitated by an adult, by a teacher. And what they found was that when they created this opportunity for those Boston kids to have that time together in this affinity group, their academic performance improved, in some cases quite dramatically. And the peer culture shifted from one where children were maybe teasing each other for doing well um, now the culture shifted to one where they were supporting each other in their success. It was a very positive experience. This was, it was implemented in a middle school setting. And um, I was asked with a team of people to evaluate this program, and we did find that it had a very positive effect on student performance. So the thing it made me think about, plus thinking of your years at Spelman, is there... A lot of the segregated schools are also poorly funded, yes. poorly staffed, run badly. So is there an advantage to schools that might de facto be segregated but were excellent schools over integrated schools where people of color are a minority? Well, I think the challenge, the question, how I want to respond to the question is that Every kid should be in an excellent school. Of course. Right. Every kid should be in an excellent school. And to use Spelman as an example, you know, there is something very powerful for young women who choose to come to Spelman. I want to give a shout out to my Spelman alums in the audience <laughs> um, that there is something very meaningful about being able to come to a place where you can say, this place was built for me, and I'm at the center of the learning experience. I'm not on the margins of it in any way. And it's important to acknowledge that historically black colleges and universities ha um, are historically black colleges and universities because of the history of segregation, but they have always been multiracial communities. And by that I mean Spelman, for example, was founded by two white women. So there, were all, there was always a presence of white faculty as part of that community, mm -hmm. and certainly anyone can apply who's interested in going. It's not segregated in the way that state-sponsored segregation was. That said, it is, there's something very empowering to be able to come to a place where you see that, you know, the young women, the, you know, the robotics team that's winning the competition in Japan is a robotics team made up of five young black women. That the um, president of Starbucks, CEO of Starbucks, is a Spelman alumna who comes back and chairs the board and then, you know, is an example, first-gen college student. Um, and so there are lots of positive dimensions of that. But I think it is also important to say, and I'm often asked this question, having both attended majority white institutions, mm -hmm. I'm a Wesleyan alum, and having uh, worked as president at Spelman for 13 years, I'm often asked about, you know, is there a contradiction? You write about, you know, how majority white institutions should create inclusive learning, and yet you were president. And I like to say that one of the benefits, particularly in the higher ed space, I'm going to come back mm -hmm. to K-12 in a minute, but in the higher ed space, one of the benefits of higher education in the United States is that there are lots of different kinds of institutions. And as fabulous as Spelman is, Spelman can accommodate 2,100 students. 
there are a lot of young people who would like to go to Spelman who aren't going to be able to come because we can only take 2,100 students. There were 8,500 applications last year for Spelman. So the fact of the matter is every institution should be a place where a young woman or a young woman of African descent or anyone can come and say, I'm going to have an excellent experience here. We know today that that is not yet true. Um, So, you know, those parents who send their kids to that METCO program um, are sending them not because they like the idea of putting their kid on a bus at 6 in the morning or 5 in the morning to get to that suburban school, but they're sending them there because they want the resources that that school provides and the opportunities that they think their children will have as a consequence. The kids would often say, I don't get why I have to do this. Why can't I have these resources in my own neighborhood? And that is a perfectly legitimate question. How do we change that? Uh, We might have to deal with how we fund schools, Mm -hmm. right? You know, property taxes are um, inequitable in the sense that if we do neighborhood assignment and if people segregate themselves in their neighborhoods, then we and we rely on property taxes to fund schools, affluent neighborhoods will have affluent schools, poor neighborhoods are going to have poor schools, and that's part of our challenge. Mm. And how do we change that? We vote for different things. So there's a, talking about how to change schools and the work that you're doing, you talk about an example in Charlotte Mecl- Mecklenburg School District in North Carolina. I almost yeah. couldn't believe this, but so I'll share it um, with all of you. They compared the placements of black and white high school students who had similar scores on national standardized achievement tests that they took in the sixth grade. More than half of the white students who scored in the 90th to 99th percentile on the test were enrolled in high school advanced placement, AP, or international baccalaureate English, while only 20% of the black students who also scored in the 90th to 99th percentile were enrolled in the the more rigorous program. So I, I have two questions. How do... How the hell do they justify doing that? And what sort of programs need to be put in place in those kind of school districts? I mean, that just seems so blatant. I don't even know how they live with that. Well, <laughs> welcome to my world. What can I tell you? I mean, was- <laughs> um, I mean so certainly... Clearly, I know I sound like an idiot, but (laughs) no, I mean, that's why it's in there. Right. I put that information in there so people will know racism is alive and well in our schools. And so as a consequence, I mean, we talk about, you know, we talk about the achievement gap, but we could talk about the opportunity gap. Right. You know, here are kids who are performing equally well on standardized tests and yet getting differential treatment in terms of access to opportunity. It's better to be in an AP class, particularly if you want to go to a school like Wesleyan or Spelman or any place, you know, if you aspire to higher education, you need those AP classes if they're available to you. And yet if you don't have access to them and yet you are equally qualified, clearly there is something wrong. And how do they justify it? I'm not sure that they are justifying it, but clearly schools can be held accountable if we do that kind of data analysis. But I'll give as an example, I talked about working with these METCO districts. I'm not going to name the district, but in the METCO districts that I worked with, one of those districts had never placed a METCO student in an honors class in high school. Not ever. And 
And I asked the question, surely at least, you know, it's hard to believe that not one of those Metro yeah. students was ready and able to do honors work, but one had never been assigned to an honors track. And so, you know, when in the context of the professional development that we were doing, there were guidance counselors in that professional development course, and they had to go back and look at how were they making those placement decisions. And, you know, that did start to change. But a lot of times we just assume, well, of course, this is how it's supposed to look based on the assumptions that we're making. You know, one of the things you talk about uh, in the book is one defining prejudice versus racism. And the other is talking about active racism versus passive, passive racism. And as a white person reading that, it made me think a lot about our roles. You know, that most white people I know would say, well, I'm not racist. And your, your point would be, well, you're maybe not an active racist, but you could end up being a passive racist by somebody makes fun of a black person and you're like, ooh, that's not good, but you don't say anything. Right. So talk a little bit about the role that white people who are not racist and object to this, what role should they take? How can they help make a difference? Sure. Well, I use an analogy in the book, which I'm going to use here. Uh, I think people have told me they find it useful. And I want everyone to imagine, um, if we think about racism as a set of not just individual attitudes, um, but really a set of policies and practices that get reinforced and uh, just as we were talking about, you know, those housing policies and practices, creating neighborhoods, you don't have to be the person who was steering people, but you might be the person who's moving into the neighborhood and not trying to figure out how to make it more welcoming, right? But the, the analogy that I use in the book is that of a moving walkway. If we think about the cycle of racism as self-perpetuating and um, that move, moves along without much of our effort, you know, because it's been put into motion years ago, still moving, and if we think about, um, I, I travel in and out of the Atlanta airport all the time. I get on that moving sidewalk that carries you along. And if you think about that moving sidewalk as like that cycle of racism, and imagine this, there are some people who are standing still on the walkway. There are other people who are walking fast on the walkway. If we think of it as, if we think about those people who are moving fast as people who are actively racist, trying to get to that racist destination. And then there are other people who are standing still. They're not thinking about it. They're not trying to be racist, but they're standing still. And then, but they're still being carried along to the same destination, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so let's imagine someone said, I am looking ahead. I can see where those active racist folks are going. I don't want to go there. So I'm going to turn around. Unless you are actively moving in the other direction, you're still going there, except now you're going backwards. You're going blind. You can't see it, but you're still moving, being carried along by that moving walkway. The only way to interrupt the cycle of racism, that self-perpetuating cycle, is to not only turn around, but actively move in the opposite direction. Um, actively interrupt it through our behavior, our questioning of policies, there's lots of ways to be active. But the point is, is that doing nothing simply reinforces the status quo. 
we might not be intending to do that, but it is so self-perpetuating that unless you are actively moving the opposite direction and moving faster than that moving walkway, you're going to get carried along in the same way. So I always think the question is never, the most relevant question is never, is so-and-so a racist or not? I think the rel most relevant question is, is that person actively working against racism? Mm -hmm. That's the question you want to be able to say yes to. So a big new part of the book from the edition in 97 is all the work that's been done around what you, the acronym for REC, Racial, Ethnic, Cultural Identity. Yes. Describe for us that development. Sure. Well, in um, a race-conscious society, let me begin by saying every adolescent is asking the question, who am I? You know, who will I be in the future? What do I want to do? Who do I want to associate with? How will I be perceived by others? These are questions that every adolescent asks. And we all have identities, multiple identities. You know, if I were to ask everyone in this audience to fill in a blank, I am fill in the blank, um, and gave you 60 seconds to do it, you'd use a lot of different words. You might say, I am tall, I am tired, I am thirsty, I am, you know, excited about being here. But you might also say things like, I am black, I'm female, I'm uh, a lesbian, I'm Jewish, I'm Muslim. You know, you would say a number of things about yourself. Those are all dimensions of identity. When we talk about racial or ethnic cultural identity, um, we're talking about that identity that comes from living in a race-conscious society and is shaped by the feedback that we get, you know, from early in our lives, throughout our lives, in terms of how people are responding to our racial group membership. Um, I, in the earlier version of my book, I called it racial identity development, and I was drawing heavily from the work of people like William Cross and Janet Helms. In the last 20 years, psychologists have said, you know, that racial identity is still, of course, important, but for some people, it's not just racial, it's also ethnic. And it's not just racial group membership, but it involves cultural elements. So today, psychologists refer to it as racial, ethnic, cultural identity, but essentially it's the same concept. And it's the same concept that basically says, in a race-conscious society, young people of color in particular start to think about what does it mean to be a member of my group? What does it mean for people to view me as a young black woman or as a young Latino man or as an Asian American or a Native American? What does that... Now, and I'm talking about people of color because those are the targeted groups relative to racial identity. White people also have a racial identity, but if you are one of those 75% of the adults who is living in an entirely white community, you might not be thinking about that white racial identity, much as I might not be thinking about my identity as an able-bodied person, because, you know, most of the people around me are able-bodied, and that's not something that is being drawn. I'm focusing on, and they're not focusing on it. Um, but if I were wheelchair-bound, I might be focused on that dimension of my identity because I would see myself as different from the people around me. So my point here is simply that um, everyone has a racial identity, but some people are more aware of their identities than others. And the developmental arc starts for children of color, typically in their adolescence. I write about teachers I've worked with who 
said, I'm thinking of a teacher once who said, I'm 35 years old. I never thought much about being white before now. You know, so it's not necessarily age-related. It has everything to do with your social context. And what's the, what's the most important element that educators need to pay attention to in their classes to mitigate the kind of passive racism that might go on in the class? Well, there are two things. I think, first of all, we all have to get more willing to have the uncomfortable conversations, right? You know, whether we're talking about preschoolers who are asking questions about racial difference, and they do. I love your, I love your, in your TED talk where you talk about the conversation with your son when he was four. Yes. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll integrate that story. (laughs) Well, I will just say, for those of you who don't know, I have a TEDx talk. You can find it on YouTube. It's titled, is my skin brown because I drank chocolate milk? And it does have to do with a preschool conversation I had with my oldest son when he was three. And also I share a conversation we had when he was four about, you know, if Africa is so great, what are we doing here? And that is how we got into a a four-year-old conversation about slavery. But that is an aside. What I want to say simply is that these are questions that curious children ask. But unfortunately, often adults silence them because the adults are uncomfortable with the conversation. And I want to just do a little survey here. I often ask this question when I have audiences. I'm not going to be able to see everyone, but I want to ask the folks down here and everywhere to just think about your earliest race-related memory. Raise your hand if you've thought of something. A lot of hands up. Okay, now the que- and I want you to just call these call out how old you were at the time of your memory. Okay, so I heard a lot of fours, fives, I heard six, I heard seven, I heard 10, I heard eight, I heard 15. Um, And so if we spent more time, we'd hear more numbers, I'm sure. But I want to know if there's anybody remembering something younger than the age of four. Okay, so we've got maybe three-year-olds, And anybody older than the age of 15 for your earliest memory? Okay, so we've got somebody up here older than 15. But I I am going to make a statement I think is true, that if we were to graph everybody's ages, we would see a peak around the early elementary school years, four, five, six, seven, in that range. And now I want to ask how, what feeling emotion, if any, is associated with the thing you remembered. You can just call it out and we'll hear some. I heard curiosity, I heard fear, I heard anger, I heard shame. What else? Disbelief. Disbelief. Embarrassment, confusion. Acceptance, perplexed. Anger. So we heard a range of words and some of them might be neutral or positive. Um, acceptance, um, that's the one I remember the most, (laughs) curiosity. Um, But then we also heard words that are clearly uncomfortable. Fear, anger, shame, embarrassment, uh, sadness, I heard somebody say. And now I want to ask another question. Raise your hand if you remember having a conversation with a caring adult, a parent or a teacher, at the time that the event occurred. 
Okay, so you're raising your hand because you did. Raise your hand if you did not. So there are more did nots just looking around the room, and that's always true. Whenever I ask this question, I always see that there are more did nots. And now I want to ask how many of you have personal experience with four, five, six, or seven year olds, your own children or somebody else's? And one thing you will probably know about those four, five, six, and seven year olds is that they're pretty candid. <laughs> they don't filter much, right? And yet we just saw that a large group of people had early experiences, race related, which made them feel uncomfortable. Not everybody, but many people. And most of those people did not talk about it at the time that it occurred. Even though we know that four, five, six year olds are pretty chatty and that they are inclined to say what's on their minds. And so I point this out simply to say that the process of learning not to talk about it has deep roots in our personal histories. It goes back a long way. And so many people really get, you know, knots in their stomach when you ask them to talk about race or racism in a class or in a forum like this or any place. And a lot of teachers, when, uh, and parents too, when they're with children who are asking questions or bringing issues up or wanting to talk about um, maybe something they've seen on the news, if they don't know how to respond, if they don't have practice, they may often respond in a way that clearly cues, this is not a conversation I want to have. Mm -hmm. And that, so not having the conversation, as I like to say, you can't solve a problem you can't talk about. And so that, that's the first thing I would say. Dr. Tatum, I would like to thank you for several things. One is I first read the book 20 years ago, um, and it changed my thinking then. I think this new edition adds so much. And I think that the work that you've done in your career around Holyoke and Spelman, or now as a writer, I know that's how you want to be described now that you've retired um, as the head of Spelman, really can change the world. And I want to thank you for making the commitment to doing that and for joining us here at Wesleyan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.